You're listening to The Magnet Podcast. Hello and welcome to The Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm Lewis Kornfeld. My guest today is the great Miriam Tolan. Thank you for being here, Miriam. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I want to start off by asking the obvious and annoying question of when when did you first get the improv bug? Well, growing up in Chicago, um, Second City was kind of just floating in the periphery. But I think probably the first inclination was the Saturday Night Live and then finding out, oh, well, these people came from Second City. Oh, Second City is in Chicago. Okay. Then just kind of SCTV. SCTV was a huge gateway, gateway drug for so many of us. Like Brian, my husband, um, uh, he also was a huge SCTV fan. So that was the kind of, that was how we kind of thought, figured out about improv. Well, we love what these people are doing. Well, how are they doing it? Well, they're doing it through this thing called Second City. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, I took classes as soon as I could. And I was terrible. I was so bad. I mean, I was such, I was so green. I mean, just a babe in the woods, just not a clue. And just everything was like, whoa, really? You know, I'm like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. But anyway, so um, so that's how I kind of came to Second City. It was just one of those things where I like what these people are doing. And these people are from this place called Second City. And who else is from there? Oh, and then there's this thing called Piven Workshop. Oh, where is that? That's on the north side. Oh, I can't go there. I'm on the south side. So that's kind of how that came about. Where were you training when you first started? Was, did Second City have their training center, or was it like Players Workshop? I did Players Workshop, I think, when I was 18, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think I had my mom drive me down there. I don't know if I could drive or I was too scared about driving because I had to drive on the Dan Ryan. But anyways, um, so, uh, yeah, so I, um, the Players Workshop, and I had a couple really good teachers who basically, you know, taught me. David Murphy was one. He was great and, uh, and did our little level five show at Second City on a Sunday, I think. And it went fine. And then, you know, auditioned for the training center shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. And then still was going to college at the same time, so. Mm-hmm. What were you studying in college? I was at Loyola. I was an English major. Mm-hmm. So everything, Brian and I often talk, Brian Stack's my husband, he's a writer for Stephen Colbert and for Conan. And um, he, we don't know if we would have had the courage to be one of those people who came out to Chicago, like Amy um, Poehler, you know, came out from Massachusetts to do Second City. I don't know that I would have had the guts to come out and try to make it at Second City. I was like, oh, it's in my backyard. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I don't know that Brian's like, I don't know that I would have, you know, crossed the country to come out here and try it. I don't know if we would have had the guts. I know, I don't think I would have. I don't think I would have had the guts to leave my state and try to make it happen at this place that I loved. Is that, do you think like, um, an ambition thing, or do you, or do you think it's kind of a reality thing? Do you think that if you had to cross state lines, it wouldn't have seemed real enough to like something that that was graspable? Well, it was like dare I dream, you yeah. know what I mean? It was not ambition, God. It was just dare I dream to even step foot on the same stage as 
Gilda and John mm. Candy and, you know, like how dare I, you know, so it was such a huge, like, pipe dream that it just would seem like, well, you know, it's like, it's like having somebody in your back pocket, like you can, your lady on the side or something like that, where you can just kind of, you know, I could just kind of play with this second city thing, but I really don't, you know, I live here and everybody takes improv classes. Of course they didn't, um, back then Mm. nowadays they do, but back then, you know, it was very weird. Um, so yeah, I just, I think it was more just kind of like not having the courage to stake a claim and be like, I'm going to give this a shot. Yeah. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Uh, um, before you, cause you were on um, Torco, right? I was. You, you went from Torco to ETC to Mainstage. Before you got to Torco. I didn't do Mainstage. Oh, no? I mean, I did Mainstage, but I was understudying Jackie Hoffman forever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. I saw a, um, a video of you. Oh, no. No, it was good. Um, but it was, I think it was the 35th anniversary show or it, it was the one where you guys were doing kind of uh, historical second city sketches. Oh, a- Avery no. Schreiber oh. performed in it. Where Mina, did you Mina find called. this? This is the deep web. I, uh, I did, um, I did one of the cruise ships a couple of years back. Wow. And they make you learn the scenes by watching the old historical Holy archives, cow. but they give every cast a, a DVD book with every single, oh, uh, every single main stage show. And, and I think most of the ETC shows are on there too Ugh. so at night when you get bored you just go through the discs wow i thought that was uh main stage what was that show i definitely did do main stage i'm sure it was it was probably old wine and new bottles that's it uh yeah and uh i think that was sheldon i was either understudying for ruthie who was doing while you were sleeping i think that movie mm-hmm. i think that was it maybe ruthie rudnick and then or it was jackie hoffman who was probably doing something um which is Myself and Pat Finn were both Jackie Hoffman's understudy. There's like no rhyme or reason for any of it. But um, anyway, so uh, so yeah, so that was an interesting show. Um, it was not because touring, as you know, is about touring the best of. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were doing the 35th, they wanted to get more scenes that weren't shopped around all the time, you know, and and so the reason they weren't kind of around was because they weren't very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so unfortunately some real clunkers in there, but yeah. What having, having kind of looked forward to being part of second city, what was, what was the experience like when you, when you hit it, did it meet your expectations? Oh, I loved every minute of it. Yeah. I loved every minute of it. The vans, the van rides were better than anything in the world. Yeah. Touring was the best. You just go to some place, and it was like either it was a great house in terms of being full, and like they were expecting you, or nobody knew you were coming, and you know you almost got into a car accident, and you know, but you're in the van with these amazing people who you couldn't be bigger fans of, or at least I couldn't. I was, I was such a fan of everybody in the van. I was absolutely in love with every single one of them in terms of. Just, you know, I mean, we weren't always on in the van, but we were just, I just loved being around them. Yeah. We just had so much fun. So everything that came on the stage was fine. And you know this, if, if you're, some of the best stuff you do is at rehearsal, mm-hmm. right? It never sees the light of day. But um, some of the best stuff was in the van, 
for sure. Who was in your touring company? Um, well, I was in Greenco, which I maintain is the best company. <laughs> and um, the, the company that I came into, I came in uh, for Susie Nakamura, who I think maybe went to Detroit or uh, maybe she went out to Northwest. Anyways, so um, Susie left. And I think there was a big turnover. People were going to different stages, et cetera. So it was um, Brian Stack, Todd Stashwick, <clears throat> who else? Teresa Mulligan, Nancy Walls, um, Jay Johnston, Adam McKay. Um, and some of these people are like Jay would leave and somebody would come in. Neil Flynn was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was kind of the core group you guys were the tall cast we were very tall yeah we were very tall with the exception of Teresa. Teresa's kind of a shorty yeah yeah you were also i think i read this somewhere uh, unlike some of the other touring company casts you guys were writing a lot of your own material on the road for sure i mean because we would screw around so much in the van yeah it wasn't writing per se we just you know like we did a month of shows in dallas and that was a nightmare it was so Bad, it was good. So we drove down to Dallas, and it, it was like June or July, super hot. And I think it was, it was Adam, Todd, Brian, myself, Nancy, and Teresa. Is that right? I think so. And Raj Horatio came out to visit, too. So um stayed at these crappy apartments, super hot. You couldn't go out anywhere. You just went into your air-conditioned band to the theater. And this theater that we performed at was this, uh, it was like this um, subscription-type theater, like a Steppenwolf or mm-hmm. a Goodman. And, and we were coming to do the best of Second City. And, you know, the sketches were, you know, jinky-janky. They were okay, you know, whatever. But these people didn't want, they just got through with love letters with, like, you know, I don't know, Mickey Rooney and I don't know who else. So we were not their cup of tea at all. And um, we knew that right away. They're just like, boo. And we're just like, all right. And so we did the shows and we would, because we knew we were kind of doing it for each other, we would try to make each other laugh, obviously, during the show. And also, I don't know how you can get on stage with Adam McKay and not laugh. He's just, and so Brian and Adam would, do things and Nancy and uh, and Teresa and so we'd all just kind of be making ourselves happy within this very uncomfortable situation which is a lot of it a lot of what touring was uh, in general and industrials and all the rest of that stuff mm-hmm. so um so uh what, what was I talking about about the getting to write your own material yeah so so anyway so then you do the improv set and uh, I don't know what about Dallas, but it really brought up just the darkest stuff. So there was just, oh, my God, just this baby head scene, which just is what it was. It was a scene about there was nothing. There was no political commentary. There was no kind of this is about, uh, you know, some kind of larger meaning in the world. It was just shocking, ugly, horrible and hilarious to us, uh-huh. completely to us. And the audience is just like, boo, we hate you even more. And we're like, we know. And uh, <laughs> it was just 
it was a disaster from the word go, but we had so much fun. Yeah. We had so much fun in our misery. I mean, it, it was just, yeah. So we did. We, we, and you couldn't help but write because you're in the van and, you know, somebody starts talking about, you know, you're in the South Side and there's a shop called Wigtown and everybody starts singing a song about Wigtown, you know, and, and then it's just like, let's put up Wigtown tonight. It's like, all right. So it was just that kind of, we all liked each other so much, and we were all, I think, I should say, tickled by each other. And I just would love, what's Nancy going to do? What's Teresa going to do? What's Brian going to do? What's Jay going to do? What's Adam going to do? You know, it was just always so, we were tickled by each other, genuinely tickled. So it was like we wanted to see what each of us was going to do. Yeah. And it was really, it was a delight. I've read um, interviews with Brian where he talked about writing and on the old Conan show, the late night show. Sure. Um, and it sounds like as much as putting on the shows, <clears throat> the time spent oh. kind of goofing around in the van seems to have carried over into the writing room of those late night shows so much. Because it seems like exactly the same thing of goofing around, making each other laugh and coming up with bits to put on that yeah. night's, on that night's taping. Absolutely. And then you always have to be like, be an outside eye and be like, well, are we just laughing because this is so dark and so wrong and so not what we're supposed to be doing? You know, like trying to get an outside eye. I mean, everybody has that in terms of like, you know, let's get some perspective here. But yeah, it's what happens in the writer's room, what happens in the van, what happens in the green room, what happens at rehearsal. That's where everything happens. And I was teaching a class and I was trying to tell, you know, like, the most fun you're going to have and the best you're going to probably do is in your rehearsals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and and not, not that I'm trying to, you know, say don't go for it, but just, this is watch right now because this is happening right now. This is the moment more than, you know, you get bogged down and nervous and all the rest of that stuff in front of the audience and people pull out guns and do something sexy on stage that they would never do during rehearsal because Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh my God, you know, an audience. So it's during the rehearsals and the vans and writer's rooms to, you know, where people say things. McCann, I think Brian McCann, you know, a lot of Brian McCann's material was just him coming into the writer's room and saying something that was completely outrageous, you know, um, Hey guys, sorry I was late. I was uh, just coming back from attractive camp, you know. Uh-huh. And then that's on the the show that night. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I wonder if um, like playing in front of a crowd that hates your guts doesn't make you feel a little bit more like you're in a rehearsal room because there isn't the same preciousness to to not deliver exactly, yeah. but when you know that it's stacked against you and they don't really care, you lower some of your inhibitions or, or lower some of the guardedness that you might bring to, to showtime. I think so. I think that that's probably true. I also think that it can go the other way where, and I know it has for me where I've just been like, screw this, you know, and just like having fun for my own sake, which is totally not cool. And you shouldn't do that. Yeah. But you know, that's, where I've gone <laughs> plenty of time. Um, but yeah, I think that there is something to that. I mean, and also just that camaraderie that you get with, you know, being in the trenches. I mean, you know, when you're bombing, it's so great to have somebody to look over and be like, holy shit, we're yeah. really bombing. And then just kind of smiling slash laughing with each other, like, man, let's see what happens. Why were you in Texas for so long for playing for a crowd that Ugh. didn't want to see the show? I don't know. Who knows? It was just a month long. 
gig that it just felt very kind of this was not streamlined. You would like, they're like, Oh, we got Google maps. You know what I mean? Like it was just a miracle that we got from point A to point B half mm. the time. And you know, you'd get, I remember going to a, a gig and it was like, um, I'm supposed to be at this hotel and just calling, you know, on a pay phone. Um, they don't have any record of me. Oh, let's see if we can try this hotel. I'm just, you know what I mean? Like this is New York city. I've never been there before in my life and I've got this gig and it's like, where am I staying? Mm-hmm. So it was very much a, a different world, not as um, streamlined and um, together, I guess. Yeah, I I'm, I'm, uh, would love to hear your your point of view on on uh, like crossing the line with an audience when it comes to a point where you're you're no longer playing to entertain them anymore. Because they're like, I, I guess I'm curious of like, what's your like inner gauge for that or or when do you kind of feel it's inappropriate? When do you feel like it's the right thing to do? When, when do you think it's cool to be confrontational? I've heard a couple of cool stories about Adam McKay. Adam really, was the king of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like deliberately trying to press buttons and, and yeah. deliberately trying to provoke reactions out of people. And it always like on paper, it sounds so cool and ballsy and punk rock. Yeah. And then I, I always start to wonder like, Oh Jesus. But if I were on stage that night, how would I feel? I'd probably be so embarrassed. Right. I think you all have to be on board. Yeah. That's for sure. And I think, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that experience where they did the thing. I can't remember what show that was. I don't know if it was pinata or whatever, but the, um, the Bill Clinton thing. Yeah. I don't think I, I wasn't there for that, but you know, that was just classic Adam. Um, because he was doing that for years, not the Bill Clinton thing, but the one thing that we did in Dallas was the, um, and I remember it. I don't know. I don't, I can tell you how I feel personally about it, but here's the story. So we were doing a show and, um, uh, do you guys need to, okay. No. So, um, the, uh, the show was going on and we'd had the improv set and it was, um, Raj, was it? No, no, uh, no. So, um, we were doing the, um, emo op. And so, you know, that's the thing where you call out the suggestion of emotions and, and anyways, uh, Steve Carell was dan- uh, dating Nancy Walls at the time. They're now married. And so he was out in the audience, and we're like, this will be funny if we just do this. So Steve was a plant, and uh, I think it was Adam. He was, like, saying, okay, we need suggestions, and somebody in the audience, like, anger. And Adam's like, great. And somebody else yelled out something else, and then, of course, Steve goes and, um, you know, sadness. And Adam's like, Yeah. Okay. Hey, guy. How you doing? You having a good time? You funny guy? And so he starts calling Steve out as this audience member for being a jerk. And Steve wasn't being a jerk. He was just being like, a, he played it beautifully. He was just like sadness, huh? you know, just being super, you know, Joe audience member. And Adam just kind of went at him hard. And he was just like, you know. We're all funny. Why don't you come up here, big guy? Why don't you you be a tough guy and come up here? And the audience started turning. And it was just, it got really uncomfortable. Like, really uncomfortable. Because, and that's a testament to Steve's acting. Because Steve was so great. And he looked so hurt and so kind of trying to rally and everything. And so the audience was just like, they were not having it. So Steve finally broke. And he's like, hi, I'm I'm actually here with with the cast here. So I know those guys. And this is kind of a bit we're doing and stuff like that. So, um, 
I don't know how I feel about that in terms of like judgment calls. I think it's I think it's it's important to to do it, mm-hmm. to have the ability to do it and to push. Um but you just have to kind of I don't know. I, I mean yeah, I mean it was like, are we just a big old F you to this audience? And that's just not cool. I yeah. don't like that. I, I want to include them. But, yeah, I think it's, yeah. But then, like, the flip side to that is is that kind of, like, element of danger that you expect from a really exciting show. That, you, you know, like, there's these stories about, like, McKay doing that kind of stuff. And, and as kind of questionable as it might be in the moment about like what the value is of just pissing people off. Yeah. They certainly become part of, of like the legend of second city and you know, yeah. like the legend of what makes improv theater and unscripted theater. So kind of exciting and memorable for people. Yeah, for sure. And also just the fact that something's happening here. Yeah. That something's actually happening. Right. Here. It's not, it's not just like um, dinner theater for you. You're not right. just sitting back and being amused by people, but there's something a little bit more exciting going on. Exactly. Yeah. And there's tremendous value in that. Yeah. But yeah, the walking that line of trying to be, you know, courteous to your audience and, and include them. And, but also trying to make something happen that's really happening and really, alive and feels dangerous and feels now mm. you want that i don't know uh i have a couple more questions about second city mm. um so having a political point of view is a really big part of of that theater mm-hmm. um coming from a background where you're, you're you're really getting into it based on sctv which is much more character based and much more entertainment based and much kind of goofier. Yeah. Uh, um, how important was a political, like how, how, how did you find yourself meshing with the sensibility of the theater really well when you got there or, or was it something that you had to kind of adapt yourself to a house sensibility? Yeah, there was room for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was not, I mean, Amy Sedaris is not a political comedian. She was able to do all of her characters and, and that kind of thing. And also I think, political comedy and satire, if it's not based in reality, is just, you know, you have to have relationships and you have to have um, real people. Um, If it's just, you know, like a commentary on the news, that's just, to me, super boring. And it really doesn't have a long life, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. So, um, but it was very inclusive. Maybe it's not that way. Maybe it's much more political now and much more satirical and much more, but back then there was room for everything. And certainly my forte or my interest was not of the political, you know, I, I really wanted to do characters and relationship scenes and that kind of stuff. So it was, it was open to that. You were um, on ETC. You were with Lois Cass, right? Am I pronouncing Both. it right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Lois Cass and, and ETC. Yeah. Um, oh, Lois Cass was separate from ETC. It was okay. Yeah. And, and Lois Cass was kind of the show that started to make Second City cool again, if I'm not mistaken. I guess I don't know. It's all kind of a jumble. I don't know where Pinata came in there, but that was definitely kind of when the long form, where Second City kind of jumped on the long form bandwagon mm-hmm. and so um, it was like when kelly leonard took over as producer i think kelly was there for a little bit um because i got hired by him so i think it had, 
anyways, it was it was kind of like the whole. There was lots of long form that was happening in Chicago, and a lot of us had been hired from Jazz Freddie. So I think it was kind of like, well, we've got a lot of these Jazz Freddie people. Let's see if we can kind of do our version of it here, and with amazing people. So um, yeah. Uh, and were you guys doing strictly long form? At, for Lois Cass? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which was the first time that happened in that building. I believe so, but yeah. I, I'm not sure. I'm not, I can't be positive. Okay. Yeah. So I want to back up for a second and talk yeah. about Jazz Freddy. You were in Ed before Jazz Freddy, right? I was. Um, uh, so it went from Ed, uh, and then Jazz Freddy was its own separate show, but there were, Jazz Freddy was inspired largely by Ed. For sure. Uh, and then that was kind of a major turning point in the city. So I'd like to back up and talk about Ed for a little bit. Sure. Can, can you talk about the show and what made it what made it unique and how it led to Jazz Freddy? Yeah. Well, um, Ed was Jim Denon's baby. Jim Denon and Lisa Harrison uh, were the two people who were kind of spearheading it. And I remember there was um, ads in the reader about, you know, come to this audition for an improv show or whatever. I think I might have it still someplace. But um, so Jim was this science guy, the science nerd out at Northwestern, and it was a bunch of Northwestern people, and Lisa Harrison, who was the producer, um, was also a Northwestern person. So she, I think Jim Denon and Lear, John Lear and Lisa Harrison were all friends, maybe Jerry Saslow too, um, and they wanted to do long form, and uh, they held auditions for it, and uh, that's how Ed came to be. And for the first cast, which I was in, it was myself, Melanie Hoops, um, Eugenia Ives, Lauren Katz, um, Chris Hogan, John Lear, and Carlos Jacot. And... Um, my memory of that time was that we rehearsed, it felt like for six months, for like seven days a week, for six hours at a time every day. Like we never left the theater and we were learning and we were exploring and it was amazing and, you know, just really cool. And then the time came to put the show up. And I think we had like maybe. I don't know, maybe three weekends of shows or something like that. And for me personally, I froze. I'm like, I don't know how to do this in front of an audience. <laughs> I really had no idea. I was like, because we were so insulated for so long. We were really, I mean, there's, it was the best thing you could have done in terms of like fully immersive learning and, and just the experience was amazing. But, um, but when it came time to do the show, I definitely froze up. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a great experience. I think it really, it was successful in some ways. Um, but then I think the, the, the iterations later on were more successful. Um, I think there was maybe one or two. I know there was another Ed after the first Ed, because I saw that. That was at the Remains Theater, I think. And then there was like Daddy, maybe, and a couple other things. But so that was kind of, but all these things came from Dell. Mm-hmm. But it was Jim's spin on it, basically. Um, and it was really, it was, it was really nice because it was about giving things time, giving things space, 
seeing where things could go. And it was just, it was terrific. It was, it was so great because when you, uh, when there's, was, this is before my time at Second City, there was, back then it was very improv is game. It's just, you know, games, nonstop games, you know, emo ops. Okay. In the, in like the short form sense of games. Short forms. Exactly. So, um, this was so mind blowing to me and so amazing. And I was like, Oh, this is what I like. Cause I, I, first of all, I'm not very good at short form and, uh, and therefore slash whatever. I don't, I don't like it too much, you know, and it's, I I find it also boring Mm because you've seen it. You've seen, if you've seen one thing, you've seen them all. So there's really no interest in it for me, but this was so like, it was just so great to kind of sit in a scene and see where it would go and just riding the wave of it. And it was just, it was such a fantastic place to be. It was just, I felt like it was such a privilege. So, um, so that that felt and it felt like it was something new that was happening. But certainly, Dell was there before with, uh, you know, the Herald and stuff like that. I wasn't an IO person, so I didn't really know that much about that. But um, but yeah, so that's that's how that came about with Jim and and Lisa. And then it, it sounds like the IO people saw Ed, and that kind of galvanized them into putting together the best that they had with Jazz Freddy, which was kind of an extension of that same idea of slower play, more theatrical play, more grounded, more human-based. Yeah, I think so. I think Pete Zradnick, Gardner, um, he was in, I think, the second ed. And so what was interesting was that what Jim did was he put actors together with improvisers. Mm -hmm. So that was a template that kind of was just like, oh, okay, so we're not all of cut of the same cloth. And so they brought a different energy to it than, uh, than our energy. And it was like kind of trying to find, well, what is this together? Um, and I think that that was, was really revelatory in terms of, you know, going forward in terms of making this more theater piece as opposed to a parlor game or, you know, the short form, um, and I think that appealed to a lot of people. And I think, I mean, what I was, I just, I, I'm more interested in watching a scene than a game. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about a game, the game within the scene. I'm talking about like, you know. Right. Uh, love letters or. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so it really appealed to me and it was, it seemed like it, it uh, was very appealing to what was to, to the audience in Chicago, it seemed like they were ready for it. And there's certain people like, and you have to kind of, it, it, there was a time where you had to kind of figure out, well, what is this and, and how to, how does the audience respond to it? You know, the audience was always very good about it, but like people like TJ and Dave, they have taught their audience Mm -hmm. how to be in terms of how to, I mean, they're brilliant, et cetera. But, Audiences that come see TJ and Dave are not expecting, you know, comedy sports. They're coming for theater Mm -hmm. and they get theater. And so you, there was a mindset, there was something that changed. It was less about kind of two drinks, you know, minimum sitting down and, you know, having wait staff and kind of rockabilly and more theater. It was just more theater. And it was, it was really refreshing and it was really gratifying 
It, it, it sounds like you guys kind of paved the way for stuff like TJ and Dave or, or Stolen House, kind of the first the first group to really do it in a theater and not in a club or, or in a bar, the first group to perform on sets that were already built for other shows, the first group to... I mean, you got national attention for that show. I, I, uh, uh, I forget what theater magazine you were written up in, but it was a really big deal, right? It was a big deal. I remember seeing it and I was just like, holy cow, that's so cool. Um the reason why um, we did the the we partook of, of the other stage was because when we were performing at Live Bait as Jazz Freddy, they were doing like Anna Christie or something like that. So we had, the stage was set mm-hmm. and we worked around it. So that it was just out of necessity. There was no rhyme or reason to it other than it was just like, well, oh, we got this space, thank God, and they're only charging us this amount of money, and or they're not. I can't even remember. They were probably so nice. They probably never. Did and we performed on Mondays. You know what I mean, like so. Um, Which was an off night for for the rest of the entertainment business in right. the city, so Ex- people could come out and see what you guys were doing. Exactly, and well, I mean, I think it was an off night for the theater, so that we had this theater space available to us. You yeah. know, so it was just it was very much a kind of like let's use what we can because we've got nothing. Uh, can you describe what the ethos of Jazz Freddy was? What exactly did you do? Um, I know that there was a form that you played. It was two acts and there was a form to it. But but what kind of made it unique? Oh, I still listen to, I think, is it Three Mint Julep or Two Mint Julep, that Ray Charles song, which is what we used to play before we came out there. And I get nervous. I get butterflies whenever I hear it because that was the intro. Um, I think it was just so... Let's see what happens, guys. It was just a very much kind of we're all into this together, very much got your back. Um, it was just, it was such a great combination of working together. It felt like a team, like it felt like team sports. That was really where I felt like, oh, I get what team sports are about because mm. I never played them. And so I'm like, oh, I get this. I have to help this guy out and he is going to help me out. And it just felt very much like that. I mean, of course, we'd all still get in our heads and be, you know, whatever. But it just felt so, um, it felt like a game you were playing with a terrific team, and that's what it was. And there was no who's funny tonight. It was just, you know, it was more about what's true, what what's happening here. You know, let's see how this plays out. And it was just, it was very magical and it felt that way. It, like, I think for all of us, we're just like, Holy cow. You know, it, it just felt magical. When, um, when you were playing with Ed and you were mixing up improvisers with actors, yeah. what did you get from working with the actors? Like how, how did that change the way that you were playing? How were they approaching scenes versus, versus how were, how were the improvisers approaching and how did you find a middle ground together to, to, to make it work? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think in terms of casting, I think Jim was really smart in terms of casting people. If he's casting improvisers, he wasn't casting the, you know, the people who are really, you know, wackadoo, Mm -hmm. you know, so people who might be a little bit more open to playing things longer or whatever. And then the actors were just coming at it in a very open kind of way and just approaching it like they would, you know, their craft. So back then it was very it was very interesting because they were two worlds acting in and improv were two very separate worlds. The improvisers would be at the party and they would have completely cleaned out the keg and they would be throwing up and all the rest of the stuff. And then the actors would come in and do backbends and spot each other. And, you mm-hmm. know, it was just never the, the two would meet. And it was very much kind of like us and them. 
So I think in, in putting us together, it was this kind of, we learned to respect each other. Maybe we, maybe we as improvisers learned to respect actors more um, than we had before that, because I think, I don't know, I think improvisers have an inferiority complex. So I think uh, kind of letting us come see them and kind of be like, Oh, okay. They're not so bad. And, you know, we can handle it. So I think a lot of that is still present and alive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I like, I know for, for me, uh, a lot of times I'll look at actors and think of like, Oh, you're just taking it so seriously. It doesn't have to be such a big deal. We, We can relax. But then the first time I started doing like hour long shows with one or two other people and I realized like, oh my God, I'm not good enough to support this. I have no discipline whatsoever. And you have that mixed bag of like respect and also kind of laughing at their thing. And I'm sure it's the same way that like you laugh at our thing too. Absolutely. Yeah. It cuts both ways. For sure. Yeah, it is. It's you, you, there's much to be gained by watching and, and, and performing and learning from them because they have so much skill and they're not looking for something that we maybe have been looking for, which is the laugh. You know, they're not looking for that. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's the perfect combination, you know, but you don't want to make them be the straight man all the time either. But at any rate, you know. Well, what are they looking for? They're looking for the heat. They're looking for the conflict. I don't know. Um, I mean... I think that's what everybody's looking for in terms of what's going to happen. I think maybe, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know what, I don't know. I think that, I think that basically was be putting both of us on the same page so that the improvisers and the actors were on the same page and we're all looking for the very same thing. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a kind of like, okay, they're looking for this and we're looking for that. It was more like, we got to find out what we're looking for together. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that was the history for that was what it was like for us in terms of coming out. It wasn't didn't feel like there was any kind of and maybe there was, but it didn't feel like there was a kind of real demarcation in terms of what their objectives were and what our objectives were. Perhaps there were in Jim's mind or whatever it was, but I don't know. What are you looking for in the scene? Connection. Connection. Always connection. Um, Emotional connection. I think I think I'm looking for what's happening right now and it's always between us. Mm-hmm. Um and it happens usually before one of us says anything. Um and that's probably where I'm where I find what's happening in the scene, what what's actually what's going on. Mm-hmm. Is that moment of like, well, like maybe somebody's telling me a premise, but what's really happening is they're being aggressive to me or um, they're holding their body in a certain way or I don't know. There's something else that's happening other than what they're saying. And I find that interesting. I don't know. Uh, I'm probably misquoting this, but... um uh, I read somewhere Dave Pasquese saying that the real the real improv happens when you're not talking. Yeah, which for I love, sure. and, and for it, sure. it's such a calming thing. Ugh, the best. When, when you're overthinking on stage, it's Ugh. so calming to think of. I'm I'm only really improvising when I shut the hell up and, and watch you. I know, and it's that's so, so easy. Good. I can shut up and watch you. That's fine. That's so good. Yeah, 
It's like balm. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, those two, I, 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 um, it's like going to church. That's what I say. It's, when you go there, it's like going to church. The only problem is after you watch TJ and Dave, if you're going to do your crappy improv show, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but You feel that way after you watch them play? I do. Um, and I have to remind myself, well, this is a different setting and this is, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, there is that kind of, we have to really readjust your noggin. We, before the podcast, we were talking a, a little bit about voice acting. Hmm. I find a similar thing after I watch TJ and Dave that happens when I try voice acting. Mm. If I watch them perform, I then get so self-conscious in my own shows about the easy jokes that I'm going totally. for. Totally. That it. I try not to do what I find funny. Yeah. And I end up flattening out my performance. And instead of going for the thing that I find funny, I start going for the thing that I find true or yes. serious. And, and you know what I mean? Like, And you just have this thin performance that doesn't feel like anything it's the worst it's the worst you really second guess everything that you do everything everything so you really do have to have a talking to yourself like in between watching them and really enjoying it and be like oh my god learning from the masters they're the best blah 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 all that that's great but now i've got this show to do and this show is a different thing yeah and it's a different animal and you really have to have that conversation because if you don't, you're just going to do that thing where you um, overcompensate, mm-hmm. you know, where you, instead of, let's say, oh, well, I always come in and say this. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come in and be very, you know, serious and see what's happening. Well, then you're just boring. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it, it, you, there's the middle ground. Again, always is the middle ground. is somewhere in there is where you want to be. But um, I have the exact same problem when I watch those two. Well, that's good to hear. Oh. Not for you, but that's great news for me and everybody listening to this. I think it's universal. I think when you see something that is just... The best. The best. Yeah. Um, that you can't... It's just really hard to kind of reconcile your experience with that. Yeah. You know. That's why I'm interested in, in what you think actors are going for in their scenes versus improvisers. Be, because... If you listen to TJ and Dave talk, they're just going for the kind of truthful thing yeah. in the scene. Yeah. But the funniest can be without it ever really feeling like they're reaching for a joke. Or, yes. And, and then you get up and you try it yourself and you find yourself, when you're doing something funny, it's like, ah, oh, damn it, I'm reaching for this obvious easy joke. Right. When you're not reaching for the joke and you're reaching for the serious thing, that feels flat and shitty and horrible, and right. and, and you're boring yourself to tears, and, totally. and you're acting in the most ludicrous way possible. Yeah. So, what is the middle ground? Like, what what is that thing that lets you that point of focus that frees you up to be not worried about how to do the funny thing, not worried about how to do the serious thing, but something that just leaves you open and responsive in mm-hmm. a way that lets your own personality come through i don't know i mean that's the million dollar that question. is the million dollar question I, I mean the thing i think about is when i'm i was like okay what can i do for this show how can i help this show what can i add for this show what can i trying to make it more of a kind of who what what needs to be done what doesn't need to be done how do i do do they would my input right now be helpful or hurtful or you know so i'm if i kind of widen the lens it helps a bit in terms of um, I heard something that Gary Shandling said when he was doing um, the Tonight Show. His it was just 
his, it's such a loss. I mean, not, he, you know, obviously he wasn't an improviser or whatever, but he said when he came out to do The Tonight Show, he, the question he asked himself was, how can I become one with The Tonight Show? Hmm. Like, oh, my God, what a great question. So I think it's maybe the questions you ask yourself. So how am I going to compare to DJ and Dave? Well, you're not. Get over it. Mm-hmm. So um, how can I, what can I do to make this experience a good experience for the audience? What can I do to um, support my fellow players? That's the only thing that I've been able, those questions, those broad questions of kind of um, bigger, big picture, widening the lens kind of thing Mm -hmm. have kept me from completely just being like, I can't go out there. There's no way, Mm -hmm. you know, which is what you feel like. Um, But I think that's it. And then you just, I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. I, I, I don't know. But that's the, only, that's the only thing I can say, and that's the only advice I can give people is what can I contribute? Yeah. And maybe the best contribution is to not go out on that scene and not do a walk-on right now because they're doing just fine by themselves. Mm-hmm. And let's see where this goes. And trust them. And then trust yourself, you know. So, yeah. I've thought about this a lot of, like, the, the people who I kind of most look up to you find yourself doing an impression of them, you know, like there's, you just, there's like too much of an influence. And, and the thing that you end up loving about people is that they're so, I mean, we were talking about Susan Messing before she's so a hundred percent herself all the time. She's fantastic. Yeah. So when you're doing an impression of the people that you admire, you're doing the exact opposite of the thing that they're doing them. That's making them so great. Right. So there's this kind of, perverse logic to it that if you really want to kind of walk in the footsteps of the people that you look up to, the only way to do that is by not walking in their footsteps. Right. Be totally true to yourself. Yeah. Right. Which is a strange feeling because either when you're being really true to yourself, either you don't notice it at all Mm -hmm. or you're kind of, it's like being a teenager. You're like aware of your gangly weird body that Mm -hmm. other people seem to enjoy right but you're like no that's me reaching for low-hanging fruit or something it's just like do you ever really get a hundred percent do you ever get over yourself and and are just able to let go or is just there is there always that irritation are you always going to be partly irritated with with being trapped in your own personality i don't know the answer i don't either but you know one thing that reminded me of is that like I'm not a big Tom Petty fan, but I remember reading that he was a big um, Elvis Presley fan. And Mm -hmm. I was just like, well, isn't that interesting? He doesn't sound anything like Elvis Presley. You would never be like, oh, I can see how that came from that. Not at all. But the idea of admiring and appreciating someone and taking that and instead of becoming, uh, you know, a person who does the impression of Elvis Presley, but a person who really is inspired by that person and really becomes more of themselves. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that that's on us in terms of like how we take what we see that inspires us. Do we turn it against ourselves or do we use it to make ourselves be even more of ourselves? Mm-hmm. And I, um, I find that really interesting. But I think age is a huge thing in terms of getting us to relax and calm down and not, you know, want to be more okay you know i think certain after i mean you know in your 20s you're such a mess and you're just trying to figure out who you are and 
what's okay and what's not okay. And after a while in your 40s, you're just like, I don't have time to be worried about how I'm looking or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just going to try to respond honestly to this situation. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm going to try to do. And when you catch yourself being like, here's what I'm going to do in this scene. And this I'm like, no, no, all I have to do is be there. Just totally be in that scene. Just listen to this person and respond to this person, however that's going to manifest itself. And once you do that, you know, it's easier said than done, but once you kind of are just like, it's, it's just freeing. Mm -hmm. It's so freeing. And then sometimes you just get up there and you just, you're dancing with the best dancer ever. And you're just like, Oh, they're taking care of everything. Yeah. So I, um, when I have the luxury of doing longer scenes, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very fortunate that I have that luxury more often than I'm mostly playing just long shows now, which is like amazing. That's fantastic. It is a luxury. Yeah. It It it, it really is. Um, I, I, I know how lucky I am. Yeah. Um, but I, I try to not exactly, it's not exactly the sequence of thoughts. It's not exactly, okay, if this were really happening to me, how would I respond? Mm. I, like, I don't frame it that way, right. but I'll make a kind of like adjustment inside myself mm-hmm. so that I'm not like acting the scene exactly. But, mm-hmm. but it's more like just trying to believe, just trying to believe what you're saying to me. Yes. And then responding to that. Right. And sometimes that goes really well. And then there are other times that I start to panic that I'm so fucking boring and I just play me all the time Mm -hmm. and people must be getting sick of seeing this. Mm -hmm. You're such a great actor. Oh my God. Do do you, you, but, but you also have this ability where like, it's always your personality shining through when I say you perform, Mm -hmm. but it never feels like you're doing the same thing twice. It, It always feels like it's a completely new thing. which is something that I've noticed that with the actors that I like the best, they have that thing where it's always them, but it never feels, I never feel like this. It's like, it's not like Tom Cruise or something Mm -hmm. where it's like, all you can do is this one thing. That's interesting. First of all, thanks for the compliment. But, um, and I think that I, I feel like I'm doing, you know, one note Sally. So I think uh, your experience of yourself is similar to my experience of myself. I don't, I think that if you were to ask somebody else, they'd be like, what is he talking about? He's Mm -hmm. completely out of his mind. Um, So I think that that's something to keep in mind. And I don't think that's ever going away. I think, I don't know. I think that's all on the outsider's point of view, because I think we always have that sense of, ugh, you know, that, that running dialogue of just, oh my God, I'm just a snooze fest and this is the same song and dance I've always done. And then just trying to bring yourself back to the moment of what's actually happening right now. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's it. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying to practice meditation because I think that that's it. (laughs) I mean, if, if you can do something where you're really there, I mean, I think that, I think when I was younger and I would be drinking or whatever or, you know, not sleeping when we were young and partying and stuff like that, you'd come and you'd do a show and you'd be really hungover or really tired and you couldn't kind of give a shit really about what was happening. You were just there and you're just like, I'm here. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have great shows. Of course, then you'd be like, okay, I have to get loaded the next (laughs) night before the show, which is obviously not what you want to do. But that sense of just being like to hell with it, I'm here. I'm going to put as much focus and attention on this moment right now within myself and within this stage and the space and 
this other person and these other people. And that's where it's just like, okay, now it's, there's a river running right underneath the stage and then you guys can all just put your toe into it Mm -hmm. and it's, everything's going to move. And that's, that's the best, but it's trying to get to that place. How do we, and that's where people run into problems because, you know, you're always trying to get to that place and there's no way to get to that place. I remember, I don't know why I'm just, all these crazy quotes are coming up, but they're not quotes, but um, Laurence Olivier did a, I think it was Hamlet or something like that. He just blew, it was just a best or whatever, and he came backstage and he got really pissed off. Like, why are you mad? That was like the best ever. We've never seen it as good. You were so wonderful. He's like, I have no idea what I did. Yeah. You know, and you just don't know. Like, how did that happen? And that's what makes it so <sighs> addictive. Yeah. And so wonderful and so magical. Yeah, yeah it's funny because that's exactly what you're looking to tap into. Yeah. And, and when you do tap into it on, on very rare occasions, oh, it, it's, it's amazing. And then it's immediately frustrating. Exactly. It's everything. Yeah. It's everything. And then you're chasing that high yeah. forever. Yeah. And so people will put up with um, – VFW Hall. We rehearsed at VFW Halls for Jazz Freddy, where there was a poster of uh, a headshot of David Mamet um, when he was an actor. I mm-hmm. mean, like we, there were more people on stage, as you, I'm sure, have had shows like this than there were in the audience. It would cost us so much money to put on shows. We, like, the idea of getting paid was just like, are you? Is that something that's done? You know, like we were so, and it was all about getting that. Um, just a taste, just a taste every once in a while. You were just like, oh, I, okay, I'll, I'll come back. Mm-hmm. I'll do this for another three years, happily, yeah. without any remuneration, without any kind of positive feedback, without anything, just for that one little hit. Um, shifting into like more professional stuff, because that is definitely like improv, even even though improv has gotten way more structured in the way it's taught and, sure. and the way it's thought about, mm-hmm. there still is that kind of like mystical quality to it that keeps people attracted. It, totally. it, it like it's its own, it's its own excuse. Absolutely. And, and, and you really do keep it to, to try to tap in again to like that current under, Absolutely. you know, you want to hit that third rail. Yeah. Parlaying those skills into a career. Yeah. Where I assume that when you're doing stuff on television or 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 you're doing scripted stuff, it it it's really more about exercising the skills that you have and and kind of less about chasing that high. I don't know. I have to be honest with you. I'm so I do some TV yeah. stuff, but I don't do a lot of it. And I I've always had a difficult time trying to reconcile this magic thing that I have that I fell in love with and I did, and then trying to make that happen within this format called television or uh, a movie or whatever it is. It's so, or, or theater for that, you mm-hmm. know, cause you've got, and so like, I, I've never been able to like, unless I go off script and then I improvise, but there has to be, and I know that there are a way where you are relaxed enough. And that's why I've, I've always had a hard time with memorization. So I don't know. And, and I don't, on anyways, but, uh, I think that there's something, I don't know, it's it's hard to describe how you marry those two things because yeah. they feel, one feels like it's so technical and dead and the other feels like it has the potential for such magic and it should ideally, uh, and what, what things 
things that last and are remembered and that touch people are the things where it's it's they're meeting each other, mm-hmm. right? So, but God knows how that happens. I don't know. That's where you know there are certain actors that I think of, like Mark Rylance is is yeah one of these guys where it, oh. it, it seems like that magic touch that you get off of improv he yes. he he brings to just every thing he does. How- how soft and quiet is he in what's the the PBS thing? Wolf Hall. Oh my god, he's so like like he takes so much time. Like if you were like if I were there, I'd be like, Jesus, I gotta say my lines real yeah. fast. And he but he's so there yeah. that you're he could you could drive a bus, like, you know, I always think like pick up your cues, you know? And it's just like I, I always used to um like there's a disconnect for me anyways, where it's like, oh, acting is, this is so stupid, but like if they were giving um, Academy Awards for memorization, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like that's not what acting is. Mm -hmm. It's not memorization. I'm telling you this, like you don't know, like, but it's, there's something between the skill and the technicality and then this other thing that we're talking about, which Mark Rylance for sure it's just like, oh wow, this this is what it can be. Yeah. And it's just breathtaking. Yeah. Oh, I love it so much. I had a roommate one time who asked me, How do you how do you judge when someone's improvising well? Because they don't have a script that they're going with, which I yeah. thought was so funny because that is interesting. Because in, in that mindset, that means you're judging good acting based on how well memorized the yeah. script is. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's that thing. I don't even know what it is. It's just like the, that same thing of like a full person seems to be shining through on these lines. Yeah. And I, I don't know, like, I don't know if you've had this experience where you go in for an audition and you're handed a script and mm-hmm. all of a sudden all of your improv training disappears. You look at words on a printed page and you're like, how the hell do I say these? Oh my God. I, you know, I'm it's just reciting, yeah. you know, and it's this crazy thing of, like I get, I'm petrified before every single show, mm-hmm. and then there's that moment where like your inhibition go. It's just like muscle memory kicks in, mm-hmm. and you get out there, and then it's like, okay, I'm I'm free to be responsive until the show's over, and then I get petrified all over again about For the sure. next one. Yeah, but that same thing, and I guess it is just a muscle memory thing mm-hmm. or a technical thing. But I never learned that trick of being able to look at somebody else's words and find the behavior between the lines and find the energy between the lines. I know. And so all of a sudden it feels so dead and, and it's just about how do I modulate my voice correctly to make this sound like human dialogue? I know. And it's the worst, shittiest feeling in the world. It's the worst. And, and like I remember taking this class, this acting class in, in, uh, in Los Angeles, and they, I mean, they mark it out so that you go up at this part, you know, you hit this note, you know what I mean? Like, it's like a, a song. It's, mm-hmm. and I mean, for sitcoms and, and like they were talking about like breaking it down, Disney shows and how the, the pattern is this. And it's like this rhythm and you're just like, ugh, this is horrible. Like, and then you realize, oh, well, that's, you know, jazz musicians improvise. They, they have those beats, but then they improvise around it mm-hmm. and change it up. So I, yeah, that's, I don't know how that happens, but I don't know, you know, like Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau reading the same dialogue is going to be totally different because Walter Matthau is going to bring his Walter Matthau-ness and Jack Lemon's going to bring his Jack Lemon to the exact same line that they're going to be totally different. But how do we do that as actors 
with a, a sitcom script that might be seem to us incredibly hacky. Yeah. Um, and yet, I've seen people on Disney Channel who really can make things really funny and really their own, and it's just them. They are working their asses off because it's certainly not the writing. And it's just like, oh, wow, that kid is great. Yeah. You know? Think about this one guy, Jerry something. He was on iCarly, I think. He was so good. So, And I was just like, oh, he's so fresh. He's just, it's really good. And it always stands out. You're just like, oh, thank you. Now it, that's real and everything else is fake. Yeah. Yeah, it... it it's interesting because when you're on stage, you get that, like the impulse to respond comes off of the other person. Yes. And, and, and then you're handed a script and the impulse respond comes off of the words and, yeah. and that feels horrible. And then you see people who have that ability to make it sound authentic again. Know. Know. It's, it's just that perfect marriage where like, yep, that's you coming through this and it's just the most, it's the most exciting thing and it looks so effortless when someone does it well yeah. and it takes so much I don't know what it takes. I don't know what it takes either. I have no idea. I know. I always think about um, Brokeback Mountain, and there's this one scene where um, he and Jake Gyllenhaal, he let her, and they come together after they haven't seen each other in a while, and his wife is upstairs, and he... Heath Ledger walks away, but he walks away where he's kind of like his head just kind of stays. Mm -hmm. And it's just the most beautiful moment in the world. And it's like, that's not on the page. Mm -hmm. That's him just being this character and being in love with this person. It just, it blows me away every time I see it. I wonder if it has something to do with the way that you visualize. Like, and I'm curious what's going on in your mind when you're improvising. Because sometimes I'll be in, in scenes where... I don't even know exactly how to describe it, but like I, I have just like an image of the scene in my mind. Mm. It's not, I'm not like working ahead to, to what's going to happen mm-hmm. and I'm not like being, I'm not objectifying the scene. It's just like somehow I have an image of, of what people are seeing in yes. the scene. Yes. And, and when that happens, I'll find that I'll do stuff like move my head in a particular way or sit down in a particular way that just kind of is right. Mm -hmm. You know, you just kind of feel like you're there somehow. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if really great actors, there isn't something similar when they're actually reading the script, if they're not there. And I don't know what it is exactly. It doesn't happen all the time, Yeah, but there are just times where you feel kind of in sync with what you're doing in a way that, that doesn't always happen. I know. I know what you're saying. And I always, I remember taking this acting class and, um, it's like if something tickles you, then you know you're on the right spot. You're mm-hmm. in the right neighborhood. So whether you're reading it and you're like, oh, that's kind of silly. That's kind of funny. That kind of something that just seems fresh. And But I don't, I don't yeah, it's, it's, it's like, is this a gift, you know, from heaven that you're just, it just happened to be bestowed upon you? Or is, is there some way of creating an environment where this is possible? Um, I don't know. It's, but it, when you see it, you're like, okay, stand up. Everybody stand up. You know, when love walks in the door, you got to stand up. It's just too good. Yeah. You know. So at, at, at this phase for you, what keeps you excited about this stuff? Oh, let's see. I mean, I think when there is a moment that's good, it fills you up. And so... Um, and then when you see people like TJ and Dave or Stolen House or any of these people, you just, and even like just teaching, like 
I'll see some of these kids and I'll be like, oh, that's great. What a great move. Like, that's inspiring to me. And I'm like, I love watching that. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I love it so much, but it breaks my heart all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, I'm not serving it. I'm not doing as well as I should be. I'm not feeling like I'm helping, um, being lazy or whatever it is, you know, when you get into patterns and habits and you're just like, Jesus Christ. And then, you know, you need to take a break from it and then you come back to it and, you know, all that stuff. It's interesting that you, you, you use that, that phrase of not serving it. Yeah. Um, I, I remember way back at, at the Magnet when Tiny Spectacular was still going on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. I mean, what an amazing cast for that show. That was a great cast. And all the people who were in classes were coming out to watch that. But you in particular, not to put you on the spot and mm-hmm. make you feel weird, you were one of those performers that was a standout even in oh. a cast of standouts where people would, would show up just to see what you were going to oh do that Oh, my night. goodness. Well, that's flattering. Thank you. But, it, like, I... It speaks to kind of like a larger truth of this thing that we do, which is so weird, which has you can parlay into a career or parlay into something more functional for your life. Mm-hmm. And you probably should be doing that uh, um, because time is short, everyone listening, and you got to grab the bull by the horns. Yes. But ultimately, there there is this sense to it. And it's the, it's the thing that keeps students coming back. It's the thing that disillusions people after a while. Mm. And then the people who stick with it long enough, I think it's also the thing that's running under the surface the entire time. This feeling that there's something bigger that you're serving. Mm-hmm. It, that you, in a way, and I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to regret saying this. Maybe this is like way too, I'm, I'm sure that this is way too whatever this is, but... But you can parlay some of that to learning more technical skills, to, to kind of developing material or doing sure. your own thing. But but the thing that ultimately keeps you hooked is this feeling that it's kind of bigger than me somehow. That you, sure. you are tapping into something. There's like a larger movement under the surface yeah. that if I do my job really well yeah. and I'm super lucky, yeah. tonight it's going to come out through whatever's going on between me and you. Absolutely. And I can't muck it up too much yeah. with my own bullshit right. whether that bullshit be self-doubt right. whether that bullshit be self-narcissism or yeah. self-obsession yeah. or whether that bullshit be obstructing it by thinking about how i'm not good enough or i'm not using this the correct way or mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not trying hard enough or like whatever the hell the thing yes. is right it's it's this really kind of demented i don't know emotionally you're always at kind of like cross purposes with it because it's like oh, i should not it's really is, is it good enough for me as a grown-up Mm-hmm. To keep on coming back to something that has no rewards other than the deep pleasure of right. of the experience itself, yeah. Yeah. and then at the same time, I feel like such a hacky piece of shit when I have those thoughts. Right. I don't. I don't know how to make sense of this. It's just kind of what's in my mind about it. Yeah. I think we probably wouldn't be having this discussion if we were talking about gardening. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like because gardening doesn't require an audience. Yeah. So, and but if it gives you deep pleasure and it's something, I I I, I don't know. I think that there is. Be, you know, art for art's sake or whatever you want to say. But I, I think that there, there is value in it just for that experience, for that feeling of whatever it is, if it's connectedness or something that takes you out of yourself and into something bigger. I, I think that, I don't know, I think life would be a miserable mess if that wasn't there yeah. in some way, shape, or form. 
whatever way, shape, or form. Yeah. You know, um, I like to, you know, it, it's always good to kind of have horizons that things that aren't improv, painting or drawing or music or reading or anything that gets you out of your head to give you that experience because you can't rely on this to give it to you all the time because it's not going to. It's going to be, you know, as we talked about, just every once in a blue moon. And well, also, it this thing feeds on, like, you have to bring stuff to it. Absolutely. And if you're relying on this to give you that high all the time, eventually it it it, you, it empties you out and it moves on to the next person because yeah. you're not feeding it with enough life yeah. experience or information. Yeah, you got to fill up your own. With passion. you got to be passionate about stuff and care about stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think it's really important. And I think it's really important, especially for young improvisers, to know that it's totally okay to take a break, mm-hmm. that that is fine to do. And it's very beneficial to do, to get away from it, to get to some perspective. Because when it's just improv 24-7, you are kind of sucking the magic out of it. You know, you want to step away from it so you can see it better. I don't know. Uh, what is your perspective when you're teaching people? Where, how are you approaching classes? What are you looking for? Well, I don't really, you know, I've just started doing a little bit of teaching. I don't, I just want to see what's what's happening if if the students are actually there and if they're observing what's happening right now at this moment and if they're not then we'll start again. Mm-hmm. That that's it cuz I don't want to and I I I think I've gotten more patience because of, you know, having kids and stuff but I yeah, I'll just stop us and be like no, this is not happening. You guys aren't here. What's what what's in this space, right? And I remember once Bernie Salins I did a show for him with, he picked a couple people over for University of Chicago and, you know, we were so flattered. He picked us and it was, I think it was Jim Zulovic and myself and Brian and maybe Pasquazi and a couple other people. And so Bernie came in to rehearse with us and we were in the ETC stage and Bernie was lovely. Bernie was a great, first of all, he was just a really nice person and he's also really, really good, which is a great combination. And, uh, especially in this business. And, uh, he, um, he got, he's like, all right, let's, uh, let's get up there. Let's improvise. And we just went up there and it was just like, we just like forgot everything. And Mm -hmm. we're just like, I don't know how to walk and talk. And, and he's just like started laughing. He's like, what are you guys doing? What's going on here? We forgot everything because it was Bernie. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, you're Bernie. And he's just like, all right, screw that. Let's. And then, you know, we finally remembered what we were doing, but, um, I don't know why I brought that up, but, uh, but that sense of, you know, this space, it can't be a black box. It can't be just two people standing there, words coming out of one person's mouth, words coming out of another person's mouth. It can't be references to, oh, my God, if I hear Teddy Ruxpin one more time, I think I'm going to lose my mind. I mean, I hear it every once in a while, but, like, some clever comment, um, cultural um, throwback um, that is so... Like, I, that just drives me up a wall, just the idea of, like, I'm going to say, I've got this in my back pocket kind of thing, this mm-hmm. kind of um, cultural commentary. Um, it's just so not of the moment of what's happening. And so whenever that happens, you know, I'm just like, oh, no, we're not, we're not going down that path. You, you can talk about it if you're actually talking to this person and you're in a relationship and this is um, a, a loft bedroom and, 
in Astoria and there's, you know, like I need to see where you are. I need to see who you are to each other. And then if there's any, you know, commentary about what's happening to the world, of course, that's great. But you have to, I have to know that this is a real place and this is really happening right now instead of two people talking at each other, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the way it is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. That, and that's where it comes back to acting again, too. It, it, uh, it's interesting how improv has a natural tendency to game itself up. Over totally. Time. Totally. It, it, like it will invariably find its way back to short form. Absolutely. And that drives me crazy. I was like, oh, just sit down on the ground. Just I'll tell the British, somebody, somebody change this picture. I want you to sit down. I yeah. want you to stand up. I want you to come forward. I want you to go backwards. Nobody can put their hands on their, you know, everyone's got to put their hands down. I don't want to see anybody folding their arms, you know, yeah. like that kind of stuff. It, because it does, it, it becomes a parody of itself. That yeah. kind of, oh, those are so hard to see when you see parodies of like on, in the onion or something like that about an improv troupe or they're pretty spot on. They're so true. They're yeah. so true. It's heartbreaking. You're just like, Oh my God. Oh, that's, that's me. That's so me. But that's where those actors backbends come into play again. I think because so. the, the ten, as, as improv gets a tendency to game itself up, it also yeah. has a tendency to, you lose access to whole, all of your body yes. below the neck. Absolutely. And it, it's cool when you watch, like when you see a photo of yourself, on stage from a show that you know was an awesome show and then you look at the photo and you're like Jesus Christ it looks like crap and it is that other magical element of when it goes beyond just superficial patterns for the sake of that right when it goes beyond throwing references back and forth to to find something funny to do right but when you're opening up those other channels and you're using your full body and 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 you're believing what the other person is saying to you you know, like it, it becomes this kind of conduit for everybody's imagination in the room, and yeah. and they project onto these two bodies in the space this whole other universe that's kind of emerging over there, and it's never caught in photos. You never mm. see it. No. So whenever you see an article about improv or an Onion thing Ugh. about improv or a photo, it always looks like hack Ugh. shit. It looks so bad. But I know. when it's really good, it, it it's not just body standing there. No, it's, it's not. It's, it's everything. It's the suggestion that yeah. invokes this whole other. Right. You can see everything. Yeah. You can see everything, and and that was the thing with Bernie. It was like, if we see it, you if if I see it, then you see it. Mm-hmm. If I see this room, then you see this room. Absolutely. So see the room before you open your mouth. See this room. Yeah. See this other person. See what you feel like within this room. Touch something. Just, just touch, just be here right now before you open your mouth. And I think that that's just taking a moment to do that is everything because it sets the tone and it's kind of says, okay, we're going to be grounded. We're going to be grounded within the scene. We're going to, um, be patient and, um, play the long game instead of the short game and, and, that might not be everybody's cup of tea, but that's what we're all going for. Mm-hmm. I think that's just, and that, that for me, that's, that's where it's at. But when you said that thing earlier about actors, what actors brought to it, that does the body. That's for sure. That's what the actors brought to it versus the improvisers. The improvisers, as you said, were neck up completely. I mean, I remember with these actors, it sounds like they're like foreign people, but they would hug you all the time and, mm. I didn't get hugged, so and I know my husband didn't get hugged. He was just like, "Okay, we hug each other when we see each other, and we hug each other just to be like or sit down." I remember uh, one of the girls put her hand on my knee, and I think I jumped like sky high. I'm like, 
I am so not in my body. I have no idea. And that's the way we all were. I mean, it was very rare to find an improviser that was in their body. So that was one of the things that the actors definitely brought to the table of this sense of kind of like, you have something other than this. And we're like, huh? How? Who's this? You know, like we, nothing. It took us a really long time to be like, hug, touch. You know what I mean? Like it was really very foreign. It seems like improvisers and actors are drawn to it for very similar reasons, but the improvisers are the people who are unfamiliar with hugs and the actors are people who are very familiar with it. Because that to this day is a very... Isn't that interesting? It feels weird. Like it, 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 and maybe some of that has to do with like ironic detachment. But I like I know like when people go to hug me, even like friends. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not crazy about physical contact, and I always feel either like, "Oh, you're a needy asshole," yeah. or I feel like, "What do you want?" Yeah, you're, you're like trying to. What's like, the ulterior motive here? What is what's the what's the long what is the game here? What, yes. what are we, what's going on here? Yes, right, and that's so crazy. That's so sad too. That's like really sad. Like, I, I don't know if it means that people who are brought up in certain households where certain things are done or not done are drawn to improv. You know what I mean? Like, what is that saying about the psychology of the person? But I just, yeah, a very clear, and it was something that was very much, it was, Brian felt it. There was a real clear thing of the improviser would, would really have to learn about touching, hugging. I'm talking about like in a, in a friendly way. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that being an okay thing and a, an acceptable thing and also a good thing like you you're so much kind of like your own entity but you want to be a part of something and so that's why it was such a great thing but it was definitely the, a learning curve there for improvisers and i find that if you want to do longer stuff you actually have to bring hug energy onto the stage totally you can get away with shorter scenes where you're basically doing an impression of other people. Yes. You may not be do, you're not doing a celebrity impression, but you're doing, you're doing in quotation marks. This is human behavior. Yes. And you can get away with being kind of ironic about it. Right. But if you're committed to a long game, if you're committed to doing like an hour long show or, yeah. or something with a little bit more heart to it, yeah. it's essential that you bring a, I give a shit about this energy to what you're doing. Absolutely. And it does change the kind of comedy that you find because then it's not the comedy of doing impressions of yeah. human behavior. Right. It first, we have to feel that you give a shit. Right. And then we notice the how you're giving a shit makes you behave in a way that we start to identify as being true about you. And And true about me. Yeah. 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 And then over time it becomes funnier and funnier. Absolutely. So it's an interesting learning curve too, to just like mature as an improviser and learn that you have to kind of give more hug energy to what you're doing. Totally. Yeah. And it's, it is, it's foreign at first for a lot of people, certainly for me, but it is, it's absolutely necessary. And it's also, once you get that payoff where you really do the, the audience and you are really invested in this character, it's so much more rich and deep and fulfilling than this kind of, you know, uh, charming reference to the internet, you know, whatever. It's just like, ugh, yeah. boring. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, I, I totally agree with you. And it's one of those things where it's not necessarily the easiest thing for certain people to do. Maybe that tension is part of what's at play there too. That tension of somebody who maybe not be as comfortable with that hug energy feeling like they have to put it out there 
kind of creates this energy of kind of like, okay, I'm putting, I'm, I'm making myself vulnerable to this moment because I have faith that something might happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. As opposed to somebody who's just like, oh, I'm going to throw my arms around the world. Right. And, you know, it comes very easy to them. I, I wonder, like I find as I get older doing this stuff, I wonder if like part of the thing that isn't attracting me to it now, as opposed to when I was in my early twenties is it, it, it's easier to be intimate in a scene Mm. than it is not in a scene. Mm. You know what I mean? Like in a way it's almost like practicing the ability to, because this moment is significant in a way that real life moments are kind of, not that real life isn't significant, but there's a lot happening all at once in real life. And you're in this moment and we're exaggerating the importance of this one particular thing or this one particular relationship. And I wonder if like somehow on some level, you know, the way that little kids will imitate adults to kind of begin to assimilate adult behavior and grow. Mm -hmm. I wonder if us improvisers don't also aim for the long haul to kind of learn how to be sort of emotionally more complex grownups too. Yeah. I I think that it's definitely fulfilling that need or that desire to be present for real moments that happen in life or I don't know. I I definitely agree with that. I, I can see that as being something like, well, it's not acceptable to be really present and show up in life. Let's say we, that we hold that to be true. But it is absolutely mandatory that we do that within the confines of this space during this time, doing this thing called improv. It's giving us permission to have the moments that we might be afraid of having in real life. I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't know. Miriam Tolan, this has been the greatest conversation in the world. Thank you for being part of it. Thanks, Liz. This has been the podcast, folks. Thanks for listening. A couple of other very big thanks. First off, as always, to our producer, Evan Ford Barden, to our engineer, Grant Michael Goldberg, and to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman. Of course, to all of you fine people for listening to this wonderful podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, please give us a positive rating on iTunes. We sure do appreciate it. Uh, This has been the show. Thank you so much for listening. One final huge thank you to today's guest, Miriam Tolan. Thanks again, Miriam. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to The Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.